Well, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to the New Testament. We're going to be again in the book of Ephesians as we continue our series in that letter. We're going to read today verses 7 to 16. Last week we started this passage. We did verses 1 to 6 where Paul focused on unity in the church, how unity is a gift from God that we get to maintain as God's people. Today he's going to transition from unity to maturity. And he's going to talk to us about how the church grows, how the church grows. And so uh, let me read to you, and then we'll talk about God's plan for church growth. Y'all want to hear that today? All right, let's, let's read together. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by human cunning, or by, excuse me, by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Uh, Have you ever uh, taken a trip before that you had to prepare physically for? Maybe you're taking a tour or a hiking trip or a a camping trip or maybe a hunting trip where you had to hike a lot. And so you had to prepare yourself physically. What did you do to do that? Well, I think uh, anytime you prepare for something like that, whether it's a trip or a sport, you got to have at least two things. You got to have somebody coaching you, or, you know, even if it's just Googling, you know, Google how to get ready for a hike, and then up comes some personal trainer somewhere's thoughts that you receive and then you got to actually execute on the plan that they laid down right you got to do both of those things you got to know what you're doing and then you got to actually do it and in the doing of it in the doing of that exercise you become more and more ready for when you arrive at the place that you don't get winded you don't get sore you don't pass out you make it through the whole trip Well, Paul is doing something kind of like that here. He's being kind of like a personal trainer to the church, helping to explain the way that God has designed the church to grow in maturity. It's a long journey. It's it's one you got to be prepared for spiritually if you're going to be a part of the church. But there is a certain way that God has picked to prepare his people for that struggle, for that journey. And he he details it, I I think, in an incredible amount of detail in these verses. Uh, In fact, there's probably more here than we can possibly cover this morning. Uh, 
but I'm going to do my best to try to give you a taste of it. Uh, as a pastor, I get a lot of mail, a lot of junk mail, first of all. And I, I get it through the, the snail mail and certainly through email. And almost all of it has to do with how to grow your church. All the strategies for how to make your church better, how to make it bigger, mostly bigger. That uh, tends to be the focus. Uh, this strategy, that strategy. Uh, but almost none of them talk about the simple things that Paul talks about here in chapter 4. That's just kind of crazy. Uh, that they talk mostly about things to do with numbers and budgets and you know marketing and all those kinds of things. Paul doesn't mention any of that. He doesn't mention any of it. He says, here is how God wants the church to grow. Very simple. You don't need a whole bunch of you know, literature in the mail to do it. All you need is the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, some leaders and some members, and you got it. All right? Let's talk about that. Three things this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to talk to you about how church growth should be measured, how it should be measured. Secondly, uh, how leaders help the church grow. And then lastly, how every church member can help the church grow. All right? How it's measured, how leaders can help, and how every church member can help as well. First of all, how it's measured. Did you notice how there in verse 7 and then again in verse 13, Paul uses the word measure? Uh, in verse 7, the measure of Christ's gifts is the basis uh, on which we each receive a gift from God. We each receive grace. And then in verse 13, it's according to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that the whole body is growing up into maturity. Uh, the word measure in Greek there is the word metron, which you probably can recognize just by me saying it. It's where we get the idea of metric system from. The, the word metric, the word measurement is from the same word. It's to literally put a tape measure on something and see how long it is, see how big it is. Uh, here Paul says in two different ways, the church and its growth must be measured by one, you know, one uh, type of measurement. It's neither standard nor metric. It's Jesus. Right? It's not standard or metric, it's Jesus. Um, think about how difficult it is to try to build something without a proper measuring tool. How difficult is it? Uh, sometimes, have you ever had the frustration of having... Uh, you know, a measuring tool or instructions that are done in metric and all you have is standard or vice versa? I mean, how, how really frustrating is that? you got to pull out your phone and Google the, unless you're just really good at translating it and you know the formula by heart, which almost none of us do. It's very confusing. And Paul seems to be saying here, sometimes in the church, we bring the wrong measuring style to how we determine whether the church is doing good or bad. Uh, God has laid down one measuring style, Jesus, and we bring our own. Uh, whether it's, you know, how big is the church, how much money does the church have, what's the church's physical building like, uh, do you have cool people at your church, uh, do you have young people, do you have old people, do you have kids, do you have, well, we, do you have good music, do you have bad music, I mean, all those things we use to measure the church. And we're constantly doing it, even sometimes subconsciously. We're constantly doing it. And yet here Paul says, wait a minute, lay down the measuring stick of Jesus, who he is, the work that he's done for God's people, and there you will be able to determine how good your church is. 
Notice how the church both comes from the measure of Christ and is working toward the measure of Christ. And you got to get both of those in your mind, okay? Uh, there in verse 7 he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measurement of the gift of Christ. Uh, grace was given to each one. Uh, last week in, in verses five, 4 through 6, we saw that Paul was emphasizing the oneness of the church. Uh, when you become a Christian, you become a part of one singular body. doesn't matter how many members there are, it's still one body. But here in verse 7, he says, But you don't lose your each oneness when you become a part of the oneness. Uh, you don't lose your personal position with God or your personal relationship. Uh, neither do you use, uh, lose your personal gifting from God, the, the grace that you yourself personally receive. Now notice, what determines who receives grace and how much grace they receive? The measure of Christ's gift. Isn't that good? Uh, when you come into the church, you don't get ranked the way that the world ranks you. And the people who seem important get a lot of good important gifts, and the people who don't seem very important in the eyes of the world get less gifts. Or the rich people get a lot of grace, the poor people get a little grace, right? It's not the way the church works. The smart people get a lot of grace, the people who struggle a little bit with smartness get less grace. Praise the Lord, that's not the way it is, right? When you come to the church, the only measurement of the grace that each and every person receives and the gifts they receive, the only measurement is the measure of the gift that Christ gave to found the church. Now, think about that measurement. Paul, in, in the end of chapter 3, remember he fell on his knees and prayed that God would give to the people at Ephesus a sight in their spiritual eyes of the height and the width and the depth and the length of the love of Christ. And he said, guess what? When you start to measure the love of Christ and you start to know it, you realize you're knowing something that's beyond knowing. You're measuring something that's truly beyond human measurement. And he says the same thing here. He says, here is the measure of Christ's gift, starting in verse 8. He ascended on high and he led a host of captives. In other words, when Jesus went to heaven, he went to heaven as a victor. He went leading a victorious army because he had conquered death and sin on the cross. Because death had been overturned at the grave. He went up on high as a victorious king. And when he got there, he gave gifts to men. That's quoting from Psalm 68. And then Paul explains what he means in saying he ascended. What does it mean except he also had descended into the lower regions of the earth? The one who ascended was the one who also descended for us. He's telling the whole story of Jesus' life right there. That's important. It's important to understand, especially here as we go into Easter week. Jesus is God. He's a divine person. That's what we believe. And for a divine person... To go up, he has to first come down. Right? Uh, Jesus, as the Son of God, was with the Father and with the Holy Spirit eternally. He was the same in substance, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit, worshipped and adored equally to the other two persons of the Trinity. There was no higher that Jesus could possibly go than he already was. 
And so, for our sake, Jesus had to come low in order to go high again, bringing us up with him. And that's what the whole story of Jesus and of Easter is all about. Jesus went low. He descended to the lower regions, to the earth. In fact, he descended so far on the earth that he died on a cross, which was an especially humbling, humiliating place to be. And then after that, he went high. And he went high not just as a divine person, but as a person who was also human. So that this very day, think about this, this very day a human being sits on the throne over all the universe. So we know that the king of the universe doesn't forget us. Because he's like us. He tasted our weaknesses. He tasted our frailties. He knows how to grow the church. Because he was himself a human like we are and had to grow up. As a human, it says in the Bible, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature as a human being. He couldn't grow as God, but he grew as a human being in wisdom and stature. He knows how to grow people in wisdom and stature. And so it's according to the measure of his gift that the church is supplied with every single thing that we need in order to grow. But it's also toward the measure of Christ that we are to grow. Look at verse 13. It says that we are to grow to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Think about Jesus on high. He's, he's a human being, perfected. He's a human being, glorified. He's actually the pattern of what you and I will one day be at the resurrection from the dead. As Jesus rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. As Jesus now is perfectly suited to interact with the Father in heaven, we will be perfectly suited to interact with the Father in heaven. Jesus is the measure of where the church is headed. Therefore, be careful what measuring stick you're laying down when you look at the body of Christ. On the one hand, we cannot be too hard on each other. And we're too hard on each other when we insist that people qualify themselves before they're let in. In the church, the only thing that can qualify you is to say you're unqualified. And, and because you know you're unqualified, you trust in Jesus' greater qualification to get you in. That's the only way to get in. And once we start like putting up other boundaries, well, that person's, you know, that person's kind of fringe, you know, because look at the problems that they have. Once we start doing all that, we actually do violence to the proper measuring tool that God has given us to measure people in his church. At the same time, we've got to stop being too easy on ourselves, too. Sometimes we're way too easy on ourselves. We think we made it because we got a building. That's way too easy on ourselves. We think we made it because we're about to particularize. That is way too easy on ourselves. We think we made it because we, you know, we make budget. It's way too easy on ourselves. Here's how you know you made it when everybody's like Jesus. <laughs> Have we made it yet, y'all? No. no. In fact, the worldwide church won't make it until Jesus himself comes and transforms us. That, therefore, we've got a lot of work to do. 
we got a lot ahead of us. I mean, this is a target-rich environment in this place. So many of us, so far short of the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, therefore we got work to do. Do you see the problem with a lot of the stuff I get in the mail about church growth? It assumes that somehow we can grow the church if we do the right techniques. Which may be true in terms of numbers and budget, maybe. Maybe you can grow the church that way when you do gimmicks. But you can't grow it like this without the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and the measure of his gift, right? It's also not the case that a church is awesome just because it's got a lot of people in it. Or because it's got a little bit of people in it. I mean, the size really is not relevant. What's relevant is, are people growing up into the maturity that Christ died for them to have? If that's not happening, then the church is not really growing in God's eyes. What God is passionate about when it comes to his church is conforming his people to the image of his son. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that is the very thing that Christians were predestined for. It says we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Wow. It's been God's plan all along. And so I wonder this morning, is that our goal? Is that your goal? When you think about your life, when you think about the life of your kids at home, when you think about our church, do you think about, man, I I want nothing more than for them to be like Jesus. I want them to be growing in Jesus' likeness. I I, I judge them on the basis, not of my own uh, judgment standards, but I judge them on the basis of the measure of Christ's gift. They're sinners, yeah, they're sometimes maybe even hard to get along with, but man, the measure of Christ's gift is far greater than their sin. And therefore, God can save them too. God can bring them in and make them like Jesus too. Do you think that way? I want to encourage you to think that way. I want to encourage you to pray that way. When you think about greater hope, don't just think about spaces and people like numbers-wise. Think about people, but not just numbers of people. Think about people growing spiritually according to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. C.S. Lewis says, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ. And he says it this way, to make them little Christs. By that, he doesn't mean we become Jesus, right? He doesn't mean that, but what he means is we become like him which is actually what the word Christian means. Do you notice how the word Christian's got Christ in it? It just means little Christ. Somebody who's becoming like Jesus. If you're not doing that, then C.S. Lewis says all the cathedrals, all the clergy, all the missions, all the sermons, well, even he says even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Because God made man for no other purpose. It's even doubtful, he says, whether he made the whole universe for any other purpose. Because the universe, it says, was made for his son Jesus. The measure of Christ. That's the first thing, how it's measured. But secondly, how can we help? How can we help? And I want to do this in two ways. First of all, I want to talk about leaders. Because Paul does that. And then secondly, I want to talk about every member. Because that's what Paul does there at the end. 
But first I want to talk about leaders. And, and this is for you, even if you might not consider yourself to be a leader of the church, or even if you're not yet a leader in the church, I want you to hear what leaders are for. Um, remember what I said about if you prepare for a trip or prepare for a sport, you've got to have two things. You've got to have somebody to help you know what to do, and then you've got to actually do it. Um, it it's not... Um, we like to think of ourselves as being very self-sufficient. Like, I, I can guide myself. I don't need guidance. I don't need help. I can do it myself. But that's never really been God's view of humanity if you look at the Bible. In fact, if you really pay attention to the Bible's teaching about humans and about leadership, it should humble all of us to think, man, God really had to bend over backwards in order to give us the provisions that we need to stay on path. Because he knows how prone we are to wonder. Uh, imagine uh, if somebody came to your house and knocked on your door and you didn't know them and they said, hey, I'm a, say, I'm a tutor, I'm a math tutor, and one of your friends paid me to tutor your child. What would you think? Would you be a little offended by that? Like, really? I, I didn't notice it, but my friend noticed my kid was struggling in math. Okay. And they, they noticed it was bad enough that they would actually pay a tutor to come and make a house call? Maybe even a series of house calls? Wow, okay, that's humbling. What if that person at the door is, hey, I'm a bug sprayer, and your friend sent me and paid, and paid for me to come spray your house? That's even more offensive. You're like, well, really? Okay, they notice their bugs. They care about it. I mean, it's so bad that they paid for it. What if the person at the door was, hey, I'm an interior decorator. Your friend paid me to come over and pay a visit and kind of re rework some things. Well, look at verse 11. Because when... There's a knock on the door at the church, and you find out who's at the door. Here's who it is. And they were sent by Jesus. It says, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. That last one is the same thing, just two words to describe it, the shepherds and the teachers. That's why the word the is not in front of both of those words, but only in front of the two. What Paul's describing here is Jesus has sent a certain kind of leader to his church from the beginning to the end of time. In the early days, it was the apostles and prophets. They were the foundational people. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll remember in verse 20, earlier in the letter, he had already said that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These were the original church leaders. Uh, we don't think there are apostles and prophets in the church anymore because they laid the foundation. And once the foundation is already laid, it's been laid. It doesn't have to be laid again. They laid the foundation of Christ by giving the New Testament to us. Then there were the evangelists. And these were people like um, Timothy and Titus and Luke and Mark and... Barnabas and those who weren't apostles but they were like the apostles assistants who came out and helped to transition the church from the apostolic age to the permanent age of the church. 
They transitioned. They, they acted in some ways like apostles, but in other ways they didn't. And all that was to set up this last one. God gave to the church shepherds and teachers. And this is what the Bible all along has promised, that among his people, God was going to give them shepherds after his own heart who would look after them, care for them, and teach them knowledge from his word. Now you say, hold on, Stan. This is a pastor preaching to us about the importance of pastors. <laughs> and yet, kind of is. But I want you to know that I, I don't care this morning about pumping myself up. That's not the point of this. In fact, I need a pastor just like you do. I need to be pastored and shepherded just like you need to be shepherded. I mean, all of us do. That's the whole point. God knocks on the door of the church. We answer it, and it's like, hey, I'm a pastor, and God sent me. And part of us thinks, whew, that's offensive, because I think I could just do it on my own. Why can't I just do it on my own? And God said, No. You're way too prone to wonder. I'm way too prone to wonder. What you need is a big, heaping dose of my word in your life. And how will you receive my word in your life unless you have someone to preach it to you? Someone to bring it right into your living room. Someone to devote their entire life to the study and bringing of the word to the church. This was God's design for church growth. He gave his apostles, he gave his prophets, and then he transitioned the church from them to the pastors and teachers by the, by the work of the evangelists. And now he continues to sustain his church by this work of ministry. Throughout the New Testament, we learn of other leadership roles. And we actually just elected a couple of different leadership roles in the church. Ruling elders and deacons. And I think, as I understand the Bible, that the elders uh, join together with the pastors. So they are, they are included with the pastors in this shepherd teacher's position to look after the flock, to shepherd them, to bring God's word into their lives, to teach them, to care for them spiritually. And deacons, as I understand it, were appointed in the church way back at the beginning because the pastors and the elders could not both minister the word and take care of the practical, physical needs of the church and do them both well. And so they had to have deacons to care for the practical needs. And so in the church, as the New Testament tells it, uh, there is a certain kind of leadership that God has set up for the good of his church perpetually, that certain men will be set apart and equipped in order to care for the spiritual and the tangible needs of God's people. Here the emphasis is on the spiritual need. Because remember his whole idea in the passage is we've got to grow up to become like Christ. And the way you become like Christ is you listen to Christ. You learn from Christ. You hear his word. You submit to it. And, and if you look there at verse 12, that's exactly what the pastor teachers are called to do. They're called to do a couple things. First of all, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. And second, they build up the whole body. Do you notice how it's an individualized work and a corporate work? They equip the saints, meaning a good pastor and a good elder looks after each individual in the church, the saints, and is working to know them so that they can properly lead them and help them understand how to grow spiritually, how to become more and more like Christ, caring for them personally 
Okay? But then there's also a corporate calling. Uh, they build up the whole body of Christ. In other words, there, there's a way that church leaders are called to care for the organization and care for the direction of the organization. Not just locally, but also regionally and also even internationally. We, we care about the whole church of God on earth by taking God's word and bringing it to God's people as best that we can. It's not that people aren't to read the Bible by themselves. Certainly they are. And certainly to read the Bible by yourself is going to be one of the greatest things you can do to grow yourself. However, the ministry of the Word through the shepherds and the teachers is a God's appointed way of especially opening up our hearts to its message. In fact, uh, one of the reformers said it very bluntly. This was John Calvin. He says, uh, if God has exalted uh, the ministry of the word this much, as it says here in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, they are insane who neglect this means and hope to be perfect in Christ by themselves, receiving private revelations of the Spirit and simply content to the private reading of the Scriptures as if they don't need the ministry of the church. He says that's insane. It's actually an insane way to think. Because once again, if someone knocks on your door and says, hey, my, your friend sent me to spray your house for bugs, and you say, well, I don't need that, that's insane. Because apparently you do. Uh, because they noticed it. And when Jesus ascended on high, the first thing he did was give to the church a godly leadership. And if we in our hearts say, and pastors can do it, probably worse sometimes than members can do it. If we in our hearts say, I don't need leadership. Whew. We're not just turning away a friend. We're turning away our Savior. John Calvin says, insane is what that is. I tend to agree with him. But notice, the ministry is not, and being a pastor, being an elder is not simply an honorific title that you get. It's not just a title. I love what it says. It's the work of ministry. The work of ministry. It's labor. It's ministry. The word ministry sounds fancy, but it just means service. That's all it means. To be a pastor is to be a servant. To be an elder is to be a servant not uh, seeking to kind of make much of yourself, but seeking to make much of the, peop of the flock, seeking to make much of God, serving Him, serving His Word, and serving God's people. Notice what happens when the leadership uh, does this well. Uh, three things, unity, maturity, and stability within the church. And this kind of gives you a little handy guide in terms of why did God appoint leaders in the church. Because without them, we'd struggle for unity, we'd struggle for maturity, and we'd struggle for stability. It says, uh, first of all, unity. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Meaning, uh, you know, basically that we would all agree about Scripture. That we would all agree about the truth of the Bible. That's why it says, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Meaning, not just the feeling of faith, but the actual content of faith is what's in view here. Leaders are supposed to teach people the content of the faith. Why? So that they would grow up. Maturity. 
Mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and also stability, verse 14, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness in deceitful schemes, but that we would be able to withstand against deception. The Bible is clear that not only are there good teachers in the church, there are bad ones. Peter says, as in the Old Testament, there were false prophets in Israel. There are false teachers in the New Testament. They are bound to come. And and the role of good teachers and good leaders and elders in the church is to protect people from the false message of false teachers. Think about it this morning. And I have a few people, especially in mind, to, to have think about this. First of all, of course, you know, if you're someone who thinks, man, I don't need this. I want you to think about it. I want you to think, okay, well, how's the unity going? How's the maturity going? How's the stability going? Without it, you know, kind of be real honest with yourself. But I also want to talk to someone maybe who, and and this may be a younger person in in the room, maybe an older person, someone who feels called into the leadership and ministry. It is a wonderful thing for God to reach hold of someone and put his hand on their life and pick them for this work. But don't forget it's work. And prepare yourself. Even if you're a kid and you're thinking, man, I might want to be a pastor. I might want to be an elder in the church one day. Prepare yourself now. Get ready. I remember as a kid sitting in a church not far from here watching what the pastor did and feeling in my heart that, that call, that tug, begin to, to materialize. Not that God spoke to me audibly and not that I expect that he would to you, but that in my heart I just heard, that's what I'm preparing you for. And this morning, maybe that's you. We don't talk about this enough, maybe, you know. That this is something that you can be called to. And we need more people to be called to this. We need God to raise up pastors and elders. It's one of the main ways that I pray for our church. Raise up pastors for the next generation. Raise up missionaries. Raise up elders from this church as we grow and develop. Because when Jesus knocks on the door, one of the things he delivers is the ministry in order to support and help his people. But the last person I want to address is someone who's been hurt by the church, or especially if you've been hurt by a pastor. It happens, doesn't it? Part of the reason why it happens is anytime you have a leader that God has ordained and they do something wrong, the hurt is even greater than if God hadn't ordained them. Because you can start to see maybe falsely, but maybe you start to see God behind the hurt that they caused. That's true of parents that hurt you because they're another God-ordained leader for your life, and it's really true, too, for leaders in the church. And sometimes, isn't it true, pastors get away with a lot because people assume, you know, they're godly and, and they assume that they always make the right decisions, and so they can get away with a lot of abuse and a lot of misuse I want to say I'm sorry if you've been hurt. 
by a pastor, especially if you've been hurt by me. Very sorry. Please give me an opportunity to apologize anytime it happens and to humble myself anytime it happens. But please know, please know, and I know this, and I want you to know your pastor knows this, that pastors will one day stand before Almighty God and give an account for how we have treated you. I believe on that day I will stand before God and you'll be there with me. And God will point out the ways that I have failed and it will not be fun for me. Or any pastor, fully fun. But for those who have hurt and abused and really misused this office, it will especially not be fun. And so whatever consolation that is, the hurt that you feel will be backed by the justice of God and the righteousness of God. See, we need to rehabilitate our view, first of all, of God, but we need to rehabilitate our view of the ministry. This is not just me, you know, trying to pump myself up. This is me trying to say, look what gift God has given. The pastors that God, have sent, that God sent in my life over the years and even the ones that are still in my life today pastoring me behind the scenes, I would not be who I am without them. Just simply wouldn't. What a gift. He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. He gave the evangelists. He gave the shepherd teachers to equip the saints and to build the body. But lastly... If you look, and I aware that I'm, I'm running a little long today, but let's just tie this loose end up. Because leaders aren't leaders so that they might be the only ones doing the work of the church. <laughs> Did you notice how it said there in verse 13 or verse 12, leaders equip the saints so that they could do work too? That's one way to translate that. There are different ways of translating it. There's debate over if that's the right translation. But nevertheless, we know that's the point of the whole passage because you get down to verse 15 through 17 and it says, we all ought to, every part, ought to work properly. See that? So that the body grows as it builds itself up in love. So the point here is not God put leadership so that the leadership would take care of everybody and everybody just depends on the leadership. God put leadership to lead everybody so that everybody would do what God has called them to do to help contribute to the further Christ-likeness of people within the church. And that includes every gift that someone gets. Uh, some people get gifts of speaking, you know, gifts of sharing the faith and helping lead Bible studies and other things. Other people get gifts of serving that are almost never seen in the spotlight. Uh, they almost never get the microphone, so to speak, in the church, but yet they serve in some unseen way. All of those are equally necessary for the church to be able to grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In another place, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, or 12 rather, Paul says it this way, One part of the body should not look down on another, so the, head, you know, the, the eye should not look at the ear and say, well, I'm an eye, you're an ear, I'm better than you. Elders and pastors and deacons shouldn't look down on people. That is the very last thing they should do. Neither should anybody in the church look up as if that person is more important than I am, right? 
He says the foot shouldn't look at the hand and say, well, I'm not a hand, so I don't matter. Instead, here's what should happen. The foot should get busy being a foot. The hand get busy being a hand, the eye, the eye, the ear, the ear. And that's essentially what he's saying in this passage as well. We can't spend our time, you know, worried about what God hasn't given us. we got to remember that what God has given us has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So whatever gift you've been given, it was bought by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, very, very important. Just as important as the gift of leadership. And instead, we ought to get busy at using it to help build the church. Let me give you three quick things. And these will be very quick. I want you to write them down if you can. If you can't, maybe remember them. Three things that each one of us can and I think should be doing so that the body would build itself up in love. The first thing is this. Get busy maintaining the vital connection you have with Jesus personally. In order for the church to grow, we have to grow into him who is the head there in verse 15. Because it's from the head, Jesus, and there is no other head, by the way. He's the only one that occupies that position. Everything else grows as it is held together by various joints. And so if the individual members aren't walking close with Christ and aren't paying attention to their walk with Christ, then you're not going to have a growing church. It might be growing numerically, maybe. It might be growing financially, maybe. But it won't be growing spiritually. And so one thing each of us can do is learn how to, how to get better and better at attending to our personal relationship with God. Very important. The second thing you can do is learn how to look like a servant. And by look, I don't mean you appeared like a servant, but I mean learn how to look at others as if you were a servant. This is what we all need to learn. It, it, it fights against so much that's naturally within us. Uh, because within us, we have this attitude. I'm here to be served. Instead of having this attitude, I'm here to serve. Jesus himself said, The Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So everyone, leader and member, every single person in the church has to learn how to look at everybody else in the church from the perspective of what needs are there that need to be filled and how can I serve? Rather than primarily thinking about how my needs can be met, my desires met, and all that. That's a radical shift, I'll tell you. That does not come quickly. Uh, That comes through a long time of commitment to being a part of the church. Uh, It also comes through a deep work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for yourself. The Holy Spirit's got to work. So it's a good time to start praying for that if you haven't been. And then the last thing is this. Learning how to be a living sacrifice to God. And that means not only that we would look like a servant, look out at people as if we're here to serve them, but that we would actually pay the cost of service. That whatever gift God has given you, Instead of worrying about what he hasn't given you, give what he has. Uh, Jesus said this thing, and I believe this is true, and I've seen it happen in my life, and I've seen it happen in the church. When you are faithful in little, he'll give you much. But when you're not faithful in little, he's not going to give you much. Why would he do that? 
Why would he do that? And so when you think you have a small gift, use that gift with all your heart. Maybe he'll give you a bigger one. But if you're not going to use the small one because you're worried about not having the bigger one, then he's not going to give you the bigger one. Why would he do it? If you're not giving and contributing to the church when you have a little bit, what makes you think he's going to give you a lot to contribute? Contribute out of what you have. That's the Bible's principle of generosity. We don't give out of what we don't have. We give out of what we have, whether that's big or whether that's small. But if everybody will give in every way, not just financially, but in every way, then we'll have a church that's growing in God's plan. And there's not a single piece of junk mail I've gotten in the mail that teaches that (laughs) or any of the other things I said this morning. They have all kinds of other things, you know, like literally I read this week about a church that at Easter rented a helicopter and dropped 50,000 Easter eggs out on their neighborhood as a way to grow their church. Weird, first of all. Second of all, littering, right? (laughs) And, And third of all, what in the world does that have to do with this? Right? What in the world, right? And again, not trying to criticize any particular church. I don't even know this church. I just read about it in the, in the paper. Weird. Let's be weird in the right ways, but not in the wrong ways. And if we follow this, we're going to be weird in some ways. But I believe we're going to be a place where the Holy Spirit is pleased and delighted to work. Amen? Amen.